Testament reading this morning comes from John chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So this morning I wanted to, uh, coming off of Easter, I was thinking, Lord, what should we talk about? And Jordan asked me to preach this Sunday, and of course my knees always buckle and fall out from under me, and I wonder what could I possibly share. And uh, one thing that came to mind right away, and it's something that comes to mind every time I run into Easter season now, is a story in the Old Testament. And Dean and I were talking just out in the hall a little while ago about how, for both of us, this was kind of one of those hook stories. For me, it was intriguing because I didn't know a whole lot about the Bible to begin with and didn't know a lot about the Old Testament. And when I read this, it did kind of throw up some flags, like, wait a minute. And so as we've also been dealing with with sort of hard sayings of the Bible, I felt this is probably a good place to go, especially on the heels of Easter as we... uh, are still reeling with the celebration of resurrection, and we are now in this Eastertide season. Like me, have you ever found yourself in a situation where you've second-guessed those in leadership or on a path that you were taking? Maybe you've trusted someone or something, even our own selves, to provide solutions for whatever pressing, lingering, or dangerous circumstances were there at the moment, only to discover that we needed just a little more trust, just a little more patience, Just hang in there a little bit more. Today I want to talk about looking and living. Out of Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. As we look at this biblical text, let me set the stage very quickly because um, we're we're going to kind of unpack this a bit. Looking at this text, we've got to kind of jump to chapter 20, the previous chapter. And I'll give you about five major things that kind of happen in chapter 20. Chapter 20 is loaded with all kinds of stuff that sort of set up this moment. First, Moses and Aaron's sister Miriam dies. Excuse me. Then at Meribah, while they're still mourning her death at Meribah, the people start grumbling once again. They've been in the wilderness for several years by this point. They're still moving from Egypt. they're, They're on their way in the Exodus, moving towards the promised land that God had promised. And they start grumbling once again. They're thirsty, they're tired, they're wandering. And so Moses intercedes for them. And God says, I will bring water from the rock. I want you to speak to the rock and I will draw forth water for them so they will be, their thirst will be quenched. Moses, so frustrated with the people because they keep complaining, they keep grumbling. He strikes the rock after shouting at them. And God still delivers the water. He quenches their thirst. And then God comes to Moses and Aaron says, because you didn't honor my word, you didn't follow what I was telling you to do. You stepped in that place and struck the rock when I told you to speak to it. You're not going to take the people into the promised land. 
you will not go in there with them. And that's a pretty bummer of a message to get from the Lord. You've gone through all these things with him and he's used you in so many mighty ways and to realize not going to be able to go in. Then with the land just on the other side of Edom, the king of Edom refuses the people passage. This means that they can see, oh, we're almost there. Now we've got to backtrack. We've got to loop around on the west side. In the midst of that, Moses' brother Aaron dies. The first high priest of Israel dies. And after 30 days of mourning Aaron's death, the Canaanites invade them. They take several of the people, snatch them up, and and whisk them away. The Israelites cry out to God and say, God, please avenge us. Give us the strength and the power to avenge our people and to go and get them back. And that's exactly what what God does. He gives them the ability to go. They destroy the Canaanites. In fact, they level it. They call the name of the place Hormah, meaning destruction. Most of us here today probably know the feeling of coming up on the crest of something, seeing something so close in sight. It's been a long trip. Many of us are probably going to be doing road trips over the summer. Some of you have already done some. And you know you're just about there and there's a roadblock. Something stops you in the tracks and says, no, you've got to actually hold off a little bit longer. You've got to go backwards a little bit. You've got to step just a few more steps back. Many of us know what that feels like, whether it's been the moments of the pandemic through two and whatever years it's been now. Perhaps it's backward steps and things that we felt like we've been making such great progress in, in, in social justice and areas of that. And so it's important for us to understand that God is still at work. And I think that's what this story tells us. And so as we look to this passage in Numbers 21, let's read it together or listen as I read. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. From Mount Or, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. The people became impatient on the way and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. And this historical account of how you have made your holiness and your power known to your people and your willingness to save them from death, I pray now that you would open our eyes through this text to see our need for you and your salvation. May we especially see Jesus high and lifted up for us and for your glory's sake. We pray this in his name, amen. So hard sayings. We've been on a series of hard sayings and Jordan has really hit us with some things that that are difficult. This one, as I said, was a tough one when I first read it. It, it actually goes along with a lot of skeptics' questions out there that, 
that look at the goodness of God and say, how do you reconcile a good God who does this to his own people sometimes? who doesn't just allow calamity to happen, doesn't allow trials to come upon people, but actually sometimes ordains them. That's a tough thing to take in. It's a tough thing to explain to people when we read something like this. Wait a minute, God would do this? He would allow his own people to die by inflicting serpents upon them? While it can be dangerous to say that bad things come from God, The Bible shows us that there are many times when they actually do, though, what we would consider bad. What makes them good is the fact that God knows how he's going to use them to grow his children in their faith and their commitment and purify them as a people set apart for him. The grace that God offers doesn't mean that sin goes unpunished. In fact, it's his love for the flourishing of his people that he does this. And he also seeks to distinguish the genuine from the false. As one commentator points points out in this story, the result, as God has said, is that death comes to those who grumble against God. God's statement that to continue to complain against God will bring death is not just a threat. It's a theological fact. God, the source of life, so rebellion is the source of life. So rebellion against God is rebellion against life itself. Death will naturally ensue. So in other words, what he's saying is that if we want to resist God and he is the source of all life, he is a life-giving God and we resist him, it's only natural that we would be pursuing the things of death. And that's what we see here. They're resistant to God and his ways. Some of you may be sitting here right now and going, downer of a text, Jonah. Why did you pick this one? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm waiting to see where the joy is. We'll get there, I hope. I hope. If you stick with me, hopefully we will see this. So the big question today is why should we trust God when he allows or even ordains opposition, trials, and death? Let's look first at verses 4 through 5 in Numbers 21. Remember, they, they just got told, we're not going to be able to go through this way. And then after they were, they were kicked back, they got invaded. They are now, um, they've just conquered the Canaanites, okay? Imagine having a victory like that. Just boom, we called on God. God gave us the strength. We wiped them out. The enemies are done. And now guess what that also means? We can move through Canaanite territory so we can get to the promised land. It's Jerusalem. And so as they're, they're looking ahead and they're looking at all this, they start grumbling again, though. It still was not enough for them. They still found a place that this is not good for us. The people grew impatient. They began grumbling. And it says here, they spoke against God and against Moses. And then some of their complaints, some of their concerns, you brought us in the wilderness to die. You took us out of Egypt. There's no good food. There's no water. We loathe, and this is it right here. We loathe this worthless food. You know, I don't know about y'all, but I remember in uh, elementary school and, and school times when, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of money sometimes. And, and there were times where bologna and cheese was like the regular deal. I remember when we were really poor as a kid when it was just beans and rice and tortillas. And um, that was kind of the week-long menu. 
And so some of that gets a little old and you think, oh, this worthless food. How many of you love it when your kids look in the pantry and you've got all kinds of snacks and things like that and they go, we have nothing to eat. Is there anything good in this house to eat? Well, we just went to Walmart last Thursday and stocked up, didn't we? We bought that giant box of Costco stuff that you said you would eat, every bit of it. It's easy for us to complain. It's easy for us to always be unsettled, not really appreciative of what we already have. Quick New York story. For several years in the past, um, I used to take my group of, of high school seniors that were my worldviews class, we would go to New York City for a week. And, uh, and it, was, it was five days of unrelenting up and down New York City streets, subway trains, going to see as many sites as we could cram in. And it was a work to be able to put this trip together every year. I had to work things out with my wife and her schedule. She had to take vacation time so that she couldn't go on this trip, but I went on this trip. We had all kinds of things that we had, to, we had to maneuver around. Parents, students, all of them worked hard to get the funds so that we could go and do this and do it in an affordable way and make it happen. And uh, this one year, I remember specifically, we had, a, we, we had a, a pretty large number of students that were what you might call ungrateful grumblers. Um, after a while, you get in New York City and things don't always go as planned. I always had an itinerary laid out. We had done this enough times. And sometimes there's just thing after thing that doesn't go right. A train shuts down that you're gonna, you plan on taking back uptown. And so you have to now figure out, oh, we got to go up here. And we got to catch that one. We gotta, and, and after a while, you hear it. You hear the brewing of it. Kids. Well, each trip every year, we would have one night. One night that we would all dress up get all suited up, the girls would have a nice dress, we would get all fancied up, and we would plan to go eat at a really nice restaurant in Times Square. And then right after we'd eat, we'd go and see a Broadway show. Usually it's like Phantom of the Opera or something. And so I remember one night we were gonna go to this restaurant we always went to. It was a great restaurant. We walk up with our group, and they are packed like we've never seen before. And they said, I'm sorry, we will not be able to sit you. And I'm like, okay, guys, I know another restaurant. It's really good food. It's a really nice place. We just are going to have to now backtrack this way. And then we're going to have to walk back this way again to go to the Broadway show. Well, you could just see all the drooping, all the frustration. We got to the restaurant. It was wonderful food. We're all sitting there eating. And as we're eating, I can hear the... And they start grumbling. And they start festering among the others. And they're like, you know what? We would have been better off if we had just eaten at the McDonald's over there or the Sabaros and gotten a pizza. And then they started like saying, you know what? I think I'm going to stay in the hotel tomorrow all day. I'm just going to stay in the hotel while everybody goes and does everything else. Well, we had an agreement that they signed about grumbling and complaining on the trip, giving them a heads up that there may be times where we have to adjust course. I had to pull these grumblers aside, this wonderful little mob of sweet grumblers I've loved since they were in junior high. And I looked them in the eye and I said, listen, if you can't stop festering this grumbling and you can't see that you are in an opportunity in a place where you won't always get to do and have, 
Remember what the clause says. We can send you home at your parents' expense early. The trip can be over because we're here to have a good time together. The grumbling ceased. It went down. By the end of the trip, those grumblers were celebrating that they had made it through the trip. They celebrated all the things they got to do. That little, those little things, those little nuanced moments, those little adjustments were not that big a deal because they made it. And it was a great time. And they still contact me and send me pictures from time to time. Do you remember this on this day? We were, we were up there together. Perhaps like me, many times your faith begins to falter and become suspicious towards God's leading. The question is love. Our text today is a biblical account that deals with a people's faltering faith. But we also see a merciful and gracious God in the midst of it who calls his people to finish. And he gives them the means to do that. So the question to why should we trust God, the first answer it's because God uses all things, even calamity and death, to call, form, and purify a people of faith for himself. So when we get discouraged with challenges, when we're blinded by our own immediate wants or desires and ambitions, we lose sight of all that God has already given us. Let's remember the story. I love how, first Peter, how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1. He says, in this you rejoice Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Later he goes on that this faith ultimately, the outcome is the salvation of our souls. So moving on in the text, we now see what happens to the grumblers, right? Numbers 21, six through nine now takes us into really kind of that moment. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone is bitten when he sees it shall live. Moses did just that. And it says everyone who is bitten, when they looked to the serpent, they lived. We have sinned against you, was the confession. You, O Lord, we have sinned against, and Moses. Pray. They call out for prayer. They cry out, please, I need, I need intercession between me and God in this moment. Moses prays. And it's the humble cry of confession when God has us exactly where we need to be. I'm going to share my story with you as briefly and as quickly as I can, but I think it's relevant and that's why this passage means so much and so does Easter every year. I came to faith in Christ, really came to the point of surrender on route to take my own life. Although I had been involved in church as a kid, on various occasions as an adolescent, I was not committed to God. However, he was already committed to me. 
In college, I plunged headlong into a deceitful and hedonistic lifestyle. Living as one guy with my faithful high school sweetheart, fiance, while living a very different life with those, quote, friends I met at college. Eventually, my deceit was found out, and I was left to my greatest fear, being alone with myself and my sin. I attempted to try and uh, move myself out of the situation the best I could. I thought, I'm going back to my college dorm. I'm going to go party it up now. I'm free. I'm single. I tried to listen to those voices, tried to convince myself of those things. I tried to fake that it was not affecting me at all. But sobriety always came back the next morning. And I was still in the same condition where I started. I began to feel the hopelessness and the restlessness and the fear that there was no hope for me. I was a vessel of destruction in my mind. I went back home for the weekend. My parents went out of town, and so there I was, still alone. The friends that I thought I had suddenly were not available that weekend. And uh, in my mind, there was just too much for me to do to make myself right with God and those I had hurt. I believe that God's forgiveness was too far beyond my grasp. Thankfully, I wasn't beyond God's grasp or his forgiveness. I wrote down some thoughts in a little journal, a little notebook that I had laying around. I had been listening to Pearl Jam and some other stuff and just, you know, in misery by myself. All the lights were out in the house except for my room light because I was in there. And so I started making my way. I wrote some thoughts down. And one of the last things I wrote in this, in this little bit that I, I just, a fit of anger and hurt, words of hurt and anger, I said, dear God, please don't leave me alone. And I got up out of my room and I started walking across the hall to get my parents' loaded handgun. And I was so determined that I was just going to do it. And so as I got across, about halfway across that hallway, I can only explain that I felt this presence behind me that made me feel like I needed to turn around and see what was going on. And I turned, and when I turned, the only thing I could see in the dark hallway was an old bookshelf that we had sitting there, and there was a Bible that I had gotten when I was in junior high at a little Christian school I went to for one semester and then left. And the gold letters on it were the only thing I could see reflecting the light from my room, just saying, Holy Bible. And I was terrified to grab it. I thought, I'm going to pick it up, I'm going to read everything that's about to happen to me judgment-wise. I don't know if I want to read that. I already have it in my mind, pretty clear. I'm beyond your forgiveness. But totally compelled, I went and I grabbed it. And it opened up to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. The heading read, Forgiveness for the Sinner. And as I read, it began, it was talking about, it was talking about someone who had wounded a community of people. And Paul was instructing them to forgive him, lest he become overwhelmed with sorrow. I was broken. I went to my knees and I wept like I've never wept before. I realized there was hope. There was a seed of possible hope. And I was so skeptical still that I thumbed and read through that Bible that night. I kept reading and reading, looking for the clause that I fit in, that it doesn't work for me though. And all I kept reading was there was grace and there was forgiveness and there was mercy with God through Jesus Christ. 22 plus years later, I'm with that beautiful fiance. 
He's done extraordinary things in my life and in our lives. I have a family that I love to look at and thank God for all the time. But I tell you that story because I was at that place. I had lost sight of the things that I did have that were good. I didn't know how to appreciate those things. Even when people tried to say those things to me, I wasn't there. Because I really did not think I had a real sin issue. And so calamity came and God hemmed me in by his providence. And it was exactly where I needed to be. It was a place where out of desperation and understanding that I needed someone more than myself. There were no fixes in this world that could give me what God could give. I realized I needed life and I found it with him. So why should we trust God when he allows or even ordains opposition, trials, and death? Because he hears and responds all those who cry out to him by faith and even working through the prayers of others. There's a little side application here that also goes along with my story. And that's why I add even working through the prayers of others. Several months after my wife and I, Marcy, we, had, uh, we were back together, we were talking about, and we talked quite a bit um, as God was working forgiveness and uh, grace in reconciling us back. And I remember her sharing a story when she was so hurt and so angry at me, so wounded, wanting nothing to do with me, and yet still feeling so, just wondering what happened. And her mom, she told me this story that her mom told her, you need to start praying for him. I've been praying for him. You know, I'm so grateful for the prayers of my mother-in-law. Those prayers before I even knew that I needed to cry out. That's what we see Moses doing for his people constantly, right? They're grumbling, they're complaining. What does Moses do? He intercedes. He goes and he says, they don't see it yet, Lord. Please help them. Please help them. Get them there. And God answers prayers. And I want to encourage you, pray for others. Pray for those that we need to be praying for. But also, keep in mind, there may be someone praying for you. Whatever the situation is, you're being prayed for as well. So verse 9, we move into the end of this. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. I love that there's not much for me to explain because Jesus did all the explaining for us. And that's why we had the New Testament reading we had this morning. In John chapter 3, one of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, comes up and asks Jesus about how it's possible for this person to be born again. And Jesus starts explaining it's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of God through the Holy Spirit. And, and so Nicodemus, like, he's, he's kind of being sarcastic with Jesus. And as Maribel read, Jesus says, you can't, you can't understand these things. You can't know these things. You can't see them, even if I tell them to you. And he's trying to help him understand that this is something that you really have to take and understand by faith. And that faith comes by a work of God. But he says this, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Then he goes on to one of the most familiar verses of the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
Jesus says, this is me. That serpent in the wilderness, that moment in the wilderness, people dying left and right, that's the reality of faith in me. There's people who will look to me when I am high and lifted up and they will believe. And then there's some that just will not. They will insist in their own way. They will, they will fall to the wayside, choosing death over life, unwilling to look and live. It's a beautiful thing to see that only God can take the very symbol of death and judgment and turn it into a symbol of life and hope. Isn't that amazing? We see that with the serpent. We see that at the cross of Jesus. Just like those in the wilderness who looked upon the serpent and lived, Nicodemus, we learn, eventually did that too. He looked up at the Son of God and he believed. As you read further in John 19, we will see, if you go back and you read John 19, you'll see Nicodemus was there. He saw Jesus crucified. He was there to help carry his body down. He arranged his burial so that he would have a, a, a fitted burial, anticipating his resurrection. Why should we trust God when faced with opposition, calamities, or death, even if he allows or ordains it? Because God gives life to all who look to Christ by faith. And that's what we're called to today and every day. To look up, to look to Christ, to live, to see that life is with Christ each and every day, no matter the circumstances, to see that we have so much more than what we think at all times because, because we belong to God. Because Christ has given us more than we could ever think or imagine. Each of us have been bitten by these serpents. Some way or another. One of the beautiful things that I love about this story that I think is so real and true to life, you notice God doesn't take the serpents away. It says that whenever a serpent bit someone and they look to the serpent, a fiery serpent bit someone, they look to the serpent on the, on, the, on the staff, on the pole, they would live. There's a sense in which we still feel the wounds, the scars of sin, right? That's the, that's the moment of our time of confession each week. That's why I love it. It's a reminder together that we all are still dealing with it. And yes, though the bite may sting, death has no power over us because Christ has risen. His resurrection showed that. He not only took care of the sin issue, he took care of the life issue for us. The death issue for sure, it's done. And so as we struggle with sin, as we feel that weight, as we find ourselves bitten from time to time, sometimes because we foolishly go into a den of them, know that Christ is right there saying, turn, look at me, see life, live. And you will. He will continue to lead us out. The new life in Christ is a resurrected life and it's a life we begin to live today. We walk in that strength and that power and that, that joy. That's why it's, it's so odd when, when we see Christians walking around like we've been baptized in pickle juice. It's like, where's the joy? Life does not hold you anymore. Or death does not hold you anymore. We, he has sealed our victory. He has conquered 
our enemies for us, even though we still wrestle with it here. I love how Paul reminds us of this resurrection life that we are to be living in and walking in each and every day. In Romans 6, he says this, for death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. And I love how he says this, the second half of verse 13, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Referring to John 3, our former pastor Skip Ryan once said, we must be a people who say, thanks be to God who raised me from the dead and gave me new life. To that great work, I contributed absolutely nothing. Jesus did it all. I'll end with this quote. It's one that I go to quite often, especially those moments when I do feel like, Lord, what are you doing? Where are you leading? I'm wondering if you've lost grip of me. I don't feel joy today. This one always helps remind me of where we should be. Receive every day as a resurrection from death. Meet every rising sun with such sentiments of God's goodness as if you had seen it and all things new created upon your account. Let your, heart, your joyful heart praise and magnify so good and glorious a creator. I tell you, nothing was more beautiful to me than the first sunrise I saw after that night that I almost took my life. Every sunrise that I saw after that for so many years, and I wish I could say every day after, but that's not true. But I do remember every sunrise being so vivid so beautiful, bringing tears to my eyes because I could not believe I was still alive. God's grace saved me. I looked to him and I lived. Dear friends, look to Christ by faith today. Live in his resurrection power and strength. And as we do that, let's boldly live and speak in such a way that calls others to look and live Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much. We thank you that, Lord, when calamity comes, when trials come our way, and Lord, even those things that we cause our own selves, the things we bring upon ourselves, Lord, because we sometimes grow impatient or ungrateful because we put things before you that sometimes cause us to lose sight of who you are and all that you have done. Lord, forgive us. But we also thank you, Lord, that in your mercy and in your grace, Lord, you have given us your son. Lord Jesus, we, we praise you and we thank you that not only did you conquer our sin on the cross, that you took our death upon yourself, but Lord, you rose from the grave so that we would have new life. Lord, that we would know that the resurrection is sure. And Lord, as we look for that, that glorious day when, when all people will be resurrected, some to heaven and some to condemnation, Lord, and hell, we pray, Lord, that that would put a sense of urgency and love in our hearts for others 
and appreciation, Lord, for the fact that you have made yourself known to us. You have helped us to see and live. We thank you for this day. And as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, Lord, may we be reminded, may we be nourished in our faith through this sacrament that, Lord, your body was broken for us and your blood was shed for us, that we might have life and have it abundantly. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.